Section 25 of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. The Third Book The World as Idea. Second Aspect, Paras 47-49 to 49. Because beauty accompanied with grace is the principal object of sculpture, it loves nakedness and allows clothing only so far as it does not conceal the form. It makes use of drapery, not as a covering, but as a means of exhibiting the form, a method of exposition that gives much exercise to the understanding for it can only arrive at a perception of the cause, the form of the body, through the only direction given effect, the drapery. Thus, to a certain extent, drapery is in sculpture what foreshortening is in painting. Both are suggestions, yet not symbolical, but such that, if they are successful, they force the understanding directly to perceive what is suggested, just as if it were actually given. I may be allowed in passing to insert here a comparison that is very pertinent to the arts we are discussing. It is this. As the beautiful bodily form is seen to the greatest advantage when clothed in the lightest way, or indeed without any clothing at all, and therefore a very handsome man, if he had also taste and the courage to follow it, would go about almost naked, clothed only after the manner of the ancients, so every one who possesses a beautiful and rich mind will always express himself in the most natural, direct, and simple way concerned, if it be possible, to communicate his thoughts to others, and thus relieve the loneliness that he must feel in such a world as this. And conversely, poverty of mind, confusion, and perversity of thought will clothe itself in the most far-fetched expressions and the obscurest forms of speech, in order to wrap up in difficult and pompous phraseology, small, trifling, insipid, or commonplace thoughts, like a man who has lost the majesty of beauty, and trying to make up for the deficiency by means of clothing, seeks to hide the insignificance or ugliness of his person under barbaric finery, tinsel, feathers, ruffles, cuffs, and mantles. Many an author, if compelled to translate his pompous and obscure book into its little clear content, would be as utterly spoiled as this man if he had to go naked. Historical painting has for its principal object, besides beauty and grace, character. By character we mean generally the representation of will at the highest grade of its objectification, when the individual, as given prominence to a particular side of the idea of humanity, has special significance, and shows this not merely by his form, but makes it visible in his bearing and occupation, by action of every kind, and the modifications of knowing and willing that occasion and accompany it. The idea of man must be exhibited in these circumstances, and therefore the unfolding of its many-sidedness must be brought before our eyes by means of representative individuals, and these individuals can only be made visible in their significance through various scenes, events, and actions. This is the endless problem of the historical painter, and he solves it by placing before us scenes of life of every kind, 
of greater or less significance no individual and no action can be without significance in all and through all the idea of man unfolds itself more and more therefore no event of human life is excluded from the sphere of painting it is thus a great injustice to the excellent painters of the dutch school to prize merely their technical skill and to look down upon them in other respects because for the most part they represent objects of common life whereas it is assumed that only the events of the history of the world or the incidents of biblical story have significance we ought first to bethink ourselves that the inward significance of an action is quite different from its outward significance and that these are often separated from each other the outward significance is the importance of an action in relation to its result for and in the actual world thus according to the principle of sufficient reason the inward significance is the depth of the insight into the idea of man which it reveals in that it brings to light sides of that idea which rarely appear by making individuals who assert themselves distinctly and decidedly disclose their peculiar characteristics by means of appropriately arranged circumstances only the inward significance concerns art the outward belongs to history they are both completely independent of each other they may appear together but may each appear alone an action which is of the highest significance for history may in inward significance be a very ordinary and common one and conversely a scene of ordinary daily life may be of great inward significance if human individuals and the inmost recesses of human action and will appear in it in a clear and distinct light further the outward and the inward significance of a scene may be equal and yet very different thus for example it is all the same as far as inward significance is concerned whether ministers discuss the fate of countries and nations over a map or bores wrangle in a beer-house over cards and dice just as it is all the same whether we play chess with golden or wooden pieces but apart from this the scenes and events that make up the life of so many millions of men their actions their sorrows their joys are on that account important enough to be the object of art and by their rich variety they must afford material enough for unfolding the many-sided idea of man indeed the very transitoriness of the moment which art has fixed in such a picture now called genre painting excites a slight and peculiar sensation for to fix the fleeting ever-changing world in the enduring picture of a single event which yet represents the whole is an achievement of the art of painting by which it seems to bring time itself to a standstill for it raises the individual to the idea of its species finally the historical and outwardly significant subjects of painting have often the disadvantage that just what is significant in them cannot be presented to perception but must be arrived at by thought in this respect the nominal significance of the picture must be distinguished from its real significance the former is the outward significance which however can only be reached as a conception the latter is that side of the idea of man which is made visible to the onlooker in the picture for example moses found by the egyptian princess is the nominal significance of a painting it represents a moment of the greatest importance in history the real significance on the other hand that which is really given to the onlooker 
is a foundling child rescued from its floating cradle by a great lady, an incident which may have happened more than once. The costume alone can here indicate the particular historical case to be learned, but the costume is only of importance to the nominal significance, and is a matter of indifference to the real significance, for the latter knows only the human being as such, not the arbitrary forms. Subjects taken from history have no advantage over those which are taken from mere possibility, and which are therefore to be called not individual, but merely general. For what is peculiarly significant in the former is not the individual, not the particular event as such, but the universal in it, the side of the idea of humanity which expresses itself through it. But on the other hand, definite historical subjects are not in this account to be rejected, only the really artistic view of such subjects, both in the painter and in the beholder, is never directed to the individual particulars in them which properly constitute the historical, but to the universal, which expresses itself in them to the idea. And only those historical subjects are to be chosen the chief point of which can actually be represented, and not merely arrived at by thought. Otherwise, the nominal significance is too remote from the real. What is merely thought in connection with the picture becomes of most importance and interferes with what is perceived. If even on the stage it is not right that the chief incident of the plot should take place behind the scenes, as in French tragedies, it is clearly a far greater fault in a picture. Historical subjects are distinctly disadvantageous only when they confine the painter to a field which has not been chosen for artistic but for other reasons and especially when this field is poor in picturesque and significant objects, if, for example, it is the history of a small, isolated, capricious, hierarchical, that is ruled by error, obscure people, like the Jews, despised by the great contemporary nations of the East and the West. Since the wandering of the tribes lies between us and all ancient nations, as the exchange of the bed of the ocean lies between the earth's surface as it is today, and as it was when those organizations existed, which we only know from fossil remains, it is to be regarded generally as a great misfortune that the people whose culture was to be the principal basis of our own were not the Indians or the Greeks or even the Romans, but these very Jews. But it was especially a great misfortune for the Italian painters of genius in the 15th and 16th centuries that, in the narrow sphere to which they were arbitrarily driven for the choice of subjects, they were obliged to have recourse to miserable beings of every kind. For the New Testament, as regards its historical part, is almost more unsuitable for painting than the old, and the subsequent history of martyrs and doctors of the church is a very unfortunate subject. Yet of the pictures, whose subject is the history or mythology of Judaism and Christianity, we must carefully distinguish those in which the peculiar, that is, the ethical spirit of Christianity is revealed for perception by the representation of men who are full of this spirit. These representations are in fact the highest and most admirable achievements of the art of painting, and only the greatest masters of this art succeeded in this, particularly Raphael and Correggio, and especially in their earlier pictures. Pictures of this kind are not properly to be classed as historical for, as a rule, they represent no event, no action, but are merely groups of saints, with the Saviour himself, often still a child, with his mother, angels, etc. 
in their countenances and especially in the eyes we see the expression the reflection of the completest knowledge that which is not directed to particular things but has fully grasped the ideas and thus the whole nature of the world and life and this knowledge in them reacting upon the will does not like other knowledge convey motives to it but on the contrary has become a quieter of all will from which proceeded the complete resignation which is the innermost spirit of christianity as of the indian philosophy the surrender of all volition conversion the suppression of will and with it of the whole inner being of this world that is to say salvation thus these masters of art worthy of eternal praise expressed perceptibly in their works the highest wisdom and this is the summit of all art it has followed the will in its adequate objectivity the ideas through all its grades in which it is affected and its nature unfolded in so many ways first by causes then by stimuli and finally by motives and now art ends with the representation of the free self-suppression of will by means of the great peace which it gains from the perfect knowledge of its own nature the truth which lies at the foundation of all that we have hitherto said about art is that the object of art the representation of which is the aim of the artist and the knowledge of which must therefore precede his work as its germ and source is an idea in plato's sense and never anything else not the particular thing the object of common apprehension and not the concept the object of rational thought and of science although the idea and the concept have something in common because both represent as unity a multiplicity of real things yet the great difference between them has no doubt been made clear and evident enough by what we have said about concepts in the first book and about ideas in this book i by no means wish to assert however that plato really distinctly comprehended this difference indeed many of his examples of ideas and his discussions of them are applicable only to concepts meanwhile we leave this question alone and go on our own way glad when we come upon traces of any great and noble mind yet not following his footsteps but our own aim the concept is abstract discursive undetermined within its own sphere only determined by its limits attainable and comprehensible by him who has only reason communicable by words without any other assistance entirely exhausted by its definition the idea on the contrary although defined as the adequate representative of the concept is always object of perception and although representing an infinite number of particular things is yet thoroughly determined it is never known by the individual as such but only by him who has raised himself above all willing and all individuality to the pure subject of knowing thus it is only attainable by the man of genius and by him who for the most part through the assistance of the works of genius has reached an exalted frame of mind by increasing his power of pure knowing it is therefore not absolutely but only conditionally communicable because the idea comprehended and repeated in the work of art appeals to every one only according to the measure of his own intellectual worth so that just the most excellent works of every art the noblest production of genius must always remain sealed books to the dull majority of men inaccessible to them separated from them by a wide gulf just as the society of princes is inaccessible to the common people it is true that even the dullest of them accept an authority recognizedly great works 
lest otherwise they should argue their own incompetence but they wait in silence always ready to express their condemnation as soon as they are allowed to hope that they may do so without being left to stand alone and then their long restrained hatred against all that is great and beautiful and against the authors of it gladly relieves itself for such things never appeal to them and for that very reason were humiliating to them for as a rule a man must have worth in himself in order to recognize it and believe in it willingly and freely in others on this rests the necessity of modesty in all merit and the disproportionately loud praise of this virtue which alone of all its sisters is always included in the eulogy of every one who ventures to praise any distinguished man in order to appease and quiet the wrath of the unworthy what then is modesty but hypocritical humility by means of which in a world swelling with base envy a man seeks to obtain pardon for excellences and merits from those who have none for whoever attributes to himself no merits because he actually has none is not modest but merely honest the idea is the unity that falls into multiplicity on account of the temporal and spatial form of our intuitive apprehension the concept on the contrary is a unity reconstructed out of multiplicity by the abstraction of our reason the latter may be defined as unitas post rem the former as unitas ante rem finally we may express the distinction between the idea and the concept by a comparison thus the concept is like a dead receptacle in which whatever has been put actually lies side by side but out of which no more can be taken by analytical judgment that was put in by synthetical reflection the platonic idea on the other hand develops in him who has comprehended it ideas which are new as regards the concept of the same name it resembles a living organism developing itself and possessed of the power of reproduction which brings forth what was not put into it it follows from all that has been said that the concept useful as it is in life and serviceable necessary and productive as it is in science is yet always barren and unfruitful in art the comprehended idea on the contrary is the true and only source of every work of art in its powerful originality it is only derived from life itself from nature from the world and that only by the true genius or by him whose momentary inspiration reaches the point of genius genuine and immortal works of art spring only from such direct apprehension just because the idea is and remains object of perception the artist is not conscious in the abstract of the intention and aim of his work not a concept but an idea floats before his mind therefore he can give no justification for what he does he works as people say from pure feeling and unconsciously indeed instinctively on the contrary imitators mannerists imitatores servum pecus start in art from the concept they observe what pleases and affects us in true works of art understand it clearly fix it in a concept and thus abstractly and then imitate it openly or disguisedly with dexterity and intentionally they suck their nourishment like parasite plants from the works of others and like polypi they become the color of their food we might carry comparison further and say that they are like machines which mince fine and mingle together whatever is put into them but can never digest it 
so that the different constituent parts may always be found again if they are sought out and separated from the mixture the man of genius alone resembles the organized assimilating transforming and reproducing body for he is indeed educated and cultured by his predecessors and their works but he is really fructified only by life and the world directly through the impression of what he perceives therefore the highest culture never interferes with his originality all imitators all mannerists apprehended in concepts the nature of representative works of art but concepts can never impart inner life to a work the age that is the dull multitude of every time knows only concepts and sticks to them and therefore receives mannered works of art with ready and loud applause but after a few years these works become insipid because the spirit of the age that is the prevailing concepts in which alone they could take root have changed only true works of art which are drawn directly from nature and life have eternal youth and enduring power like nature and life themselves for they belong to no age but to humanity and as on that account they are coldly received by their own age to which they disdain to link themselves closely and because indirectly and negatively they expose the existing errors they are slowly and unwillingly recognized on the other hand they cannot grow old but appear to us ever fresh and new down to the latest ages then they are no longer exposed to neglect and ignorance for they are crowned and sanctioned by the praise of the few men capable of judging who appear singly and rarely in the course of ages and given their votes whose slowly growing number constitutes the authority which alone is the judgment seat we mean when we appeal to posterity it is these successfully appearing individuals for the mass of posterity will always be and remain just as perverse and dull as the mass of contemporaries always was and always is we read the complaints of great men in every century about the customs of their age they always sound as if they referred to our own age for the race is always the same at every time and in every art mannerisms have taken the place of the spirit which was always a possession of a few individuals but mannerisms are just the old cast of garments of the last manifestation of the spirit that existed and was recognized from all this it appears that as a rule the praise of posterity can only be gained at the cost of the praise of one's contemporaries and vice versa end of section 25 read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama